Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Emily Ruiz from Boston. Uh, Emily is a Mohs surgeon and the director of the high-risk skin cancer clinic at Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Thomas, so much for having me. So, you know, I think we share this this interest in, in squamous cell carcinoma and almost a, a fascination for a disease that was in some ways neglected or misunderstood for a number of years. And now we're getting more and more data, a lot of it coming out from your group on how we should be managing squamous cell carcinoma. And with that in mind, I want to focus on, on particular studies, but just get your general approach to squamous cell cancer as well. And so for listeners, The article we'll be discussing today is from JAMA Dermatology titled Performance of the AJCC 8th Edition versus the Brigham Women's Hospital Tumor Classification System for Cutaneous SCC. And so for the listeners who may have not read the study in its entirety yet, um, summarize some of the key findings from that um, publication for us, Emily. So uh, what we did with this study is we used uh, the head and neck cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas in the Brigham and Women's cohort. And we compared the outcomes in AJCC8 to the Brigham and Women's. And we used uh, a few different ways to compare the outcomes. We looked at homogeneity and monotonicity, as well as distinctiveness between the two staging systems to try to understand how well the different systems are performing. Got it. And, you know, those were words that I think probably until the first article that came out from your group and and from Dr. Schmolz's team, you know, I I really wasn't too familiar with with those concepts of staging. And I think now many of our listeners are, but if you had to sort of summarize those things, because they come up over and over again, homogeneity, monotonicity, distinctiveness, what am I actually meaning when when I say those words? So homogeneity is when you look at outcomes that are similar within a class, um, a tumor class. Monotonicity are looking at outcomes worsening with increasing tumor class. And distinctiveness is outcomes that differ between tumor classes. So those are the three important features that you need in order to have a good staging system. Got it. And so then if we rewind back to the the seventh edition without getting caught up on particular numbers, what what was our main issue there when, in, in terms of homogeneity, monotonicity, distinctiveness? What was it that the seventh edition lacked that made it so hard to successfully and accurately stage our patients with it? It really lacked everything. 
So uh, most tumors were actually staged in the low stages. A lot of tumors were staged in T2, and uh, all the poor outcomes occurred in T2. And so it was really not a very useful staging system in terms of trying to identify uh, the tumors that were going to de potentially develop poor outcomes and then offering you know, additional uh, workup and management to those patients. Got it. And then, you know, I think what formal date was 2013 or so that the first um, cohort of Brigham women was published. I, I don't know the, the exact date, but basically at that point, the whole system was changed into a risk factor cumulative system, which obviously compared to the seventh edition in publications did much better uh, with all of those features, homogeneity, monotonicity, and you're categorizing tumors appropriately. But that staging system wasn't one-to-one -one adapted into the AJC 8th edition. And so um, can you just compare and contrast the two staging systems? And then we'll talk about how they compete or compare with each other. But just in terms of how they're set up, what are the differences between the 8th edition and the Brigham and Women's? So the Brigham and Women's, just to summarize, is based, as you mentioned, is based on how many risk factors a tumor has. And so there are four important risk factors, uh, which are tumor diameter, which is two centimeters or greater, depth of invasion beyond subcutaneous fat, perineural invasion of large caliber nerves measuring 0.1 millimeters in diameter or greater, and poor differentiation. And then all you do is count up the risk factors and you stage the tumors. So a T1 tumor has none, a T2A has one, a T2B has two or three, and a T3 has all four risk factors or bone invasion, which just automatically upstages the tumors. So the AJCC 8th edition is different from the Brigham and Women's staging system um, in that the lower stages are categorized solely by diameter. So a T1 tumor are, are small tumors less than two centimeters. A T2 tumor is two centimeters or greater, but less than four centimeters. And then T3 tumors um, only require one risk factor to get upstaged. And the risk factors are tumor diameter of four centimeters or greater, minor bone invasion, and then perineural invasion, which is defined either as a nerve measuring 0.1 millimeters in greatest diameter or residing in the subcutaneous fat or deeper. And that's to make it a little bit easier for um, individuals who don't have the ability to measure nerves to stage their tumors. And then depth of invasion, which is also defined in two ways, either by six millimeters or greater from Breslow's depth or uh, extension beyond the subcutaneous fat. And then T4A is divided into A and B, and they differ based on the extent of bone invasion. And uh, the, these tumors are very, very rare. Right. And especially in a the, in the dermatology practice. Now, you're a Mohs surgeon, so I... Um... I'm always interested, how are you, and we'll talk about this and then we'll talk about the actual differences in the staging system. How are you documenting those things at the time of most surgery? Do you have a dedicated map that has checkboxes for some of these high-risk features? Because, you know, when you do this retrospective research, I, I'm sure you can speak to how difficult it can be to develop such a robust cohort, realizing that a lot of things um, may not have been initially documented, and you're having to re-review maps and, and most slides. So we actually use a database, and our database is built to capture all of these different features up front, uh, which, which helps now when we go back to do 
studies, at least with our most patients, but of course with our cohort, we included all squamous cells. And so there was a good amount of chart review that had to be done, some pulling of slides in order to measure some nerves, because not everything is documented. And that's one limitation right now, you know, whereas for say melanoma, you know, all the different features are documented right in the pathology report. We don't have a standardized uh, methodology to document our squamous cells. And so I think that's a really important uh, future goal for us as a, you know, a dermatology community is to try to get uh, standardized pathology reports for squamous cells as well. And I completely agree. And uh, some of our listeners may have come across the um, survey link that was at the bottom of the last uh, ACMS bulletin, which specifically asked how and if we document squamous cell carcinoma stage, just because it does have the potential to be a, a performance gap or, or a knowledge gap in the future and will play nicely with the efforts of the Mohs College to, to develop their mosaic registry. So cutting to the chase, um, how does the Brigham and Women's compare to the eighth edition? And the caveat there is this isn't the first comparison that's been done on the two systems. I think it's the um, most interesting one because you're the developer of the staging system and now you're validating it with the cohort. But we'll also talk about the other studies that have attempted to do a similar validation. So what were your key findings? So the um, AJCC8 is a huge improvement over AJCC7. So the positives are that now you do have um, the majority of poor outcomes falling in um, the T3 group. Um, and when we looked at homogeneity and monotonicity for the two staging systems, they actually were the same, um, which was very different from when you compared AJCC7 to Brigham and Women's. So that was really great. Um, the big problem is more in the distinctiveness of AJCC8. Um, and there are two main problems, um, or I'd say maybe one main problem, uh, which is that uh, T2 and T3 are really similar. So if you look at the, the risks for all the poor outcomes in T2 and T3, they're, they're really very similar and the confidence intervals completely overlap. And so what you end up having is this very large group of tumors that has the same risks. And so when you try to go and decide you know, who's at higher risk and who do you want to follow closer, you, know, you really can't do that or you're going to have to you know, subject a large number of tumors to more intensive management or follow-up. And so that's, you know, one of the big problems with AJCC8 still. And then T3 is also in and of itself a larger group. And so twice as many tumors in AJCC8 T3 are staged as, um, are, are fall into that group compared to the Brigham and Women's T2B group. And so we see that when we look at the positive predictive value, which is 30% for Brigham and Women's and only 17% for AJCC8. And what that just means is that, you know, even though Brigham and Women's and AJCC8, T3, T2B capture the same or almost the same number of outcomes, because twice as many tumors are staged as T3, it reduces its positive predictive value. And so again, it makes it a little bit more difficult to use that staging system to guide clinical practice. And so when I see tumors, you know, in my Mohs clinic or at my Dana-Farber clinic, I, you know, and, and if they're on the head and neck, I stage them by both staging systems, but I really only use the Brigham system to guide, you know, how I'm going to recommend management because, 
you just would have so many tumors needing extra imaging or or whatnot under AJCC8. And so then when you're looking at distinctiveness and you're looking at things like sensitivity, specificity, you you, you find that it's really the positive predictive value that most helps you predict who uh, you need to worry about with within those higher stages? Well, so, you know, the sensitivity is important. You know, they're really similar. So basically that's telling you how many of the poor outcomes are falling into the higher stage tumors. And you see we have a sensitivity that's really similar. But then, you know, it's also important to not, you know, since we want to use these staging systems to help guide clinical practice, it's important to also not capture too many tumors that really aren't at risk. And that's what you're seeing with the positive predictive value. It's also important to look at the specificity, which is a little bit better for Brigham and Women's. It's 93% for Brigham and Women's and 80, 85% for AJCC8. And what that's telling you is your the proportion of low-stage tumors that will never develop a poor outcome. And so that's really useful, you know, for counseling patients and, and whatnot, um, to know that you're not missing too many outcomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let's go back to, to you as a clinician and that higher risk. We'll, we'll stick with Brigham and Women. Um, T2B category. Um, a lot of this is published, but tell me when one of those patients walks into your uh, Dana-Farber clinic, either pre-op or, or post-op for, for additional discussion, apart from the obvious things like resection, what else goes through your mind? What else is part of your uh, management of that higher risk patient? So I, I offer imaging to all T2B or T3 tumors. And then anything that I find to be borderline, sometimes I will in my mind upstage and also offer um, imaging. And what I do is I do baseline imaging and then I do every six months for two years um, because not all outcomes are obviously present at baseline, but uh, there was a, a study that showed that 90 5% of outcomes in squamous cells occurred within the first two years. And so you're really going to be able to capture most of them in that time interval. What about management of the nodal basin, apart from, from imaging in, in the high-risk patient? I, yeah. I mean, there is no right answer here, so don't yeah. feel too put on the spot. Yeah. No, no. So, you know, a few years ago, I'd say I actually discussed sentinel lymph node biopsy with all my patients. But I've slightly moved away from that, I think due to the fact that you know, I think we can maybe optimize our um, our imaging protocol depending on what modality we use. Um, and, you know, if we look at the melanoma literature, they've actually moved to using ultrasounds to help with some surveillance. And that's obviously a lot less expensive and a lot less invasive. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't having a, a lot of positive sentinel lymph node biopsies at, you know, at the time when we were doing it. Like I said, the outcomes happen within those first two years. And so they weren't always there at baseline. Sometimes, you know, when it's a, a really bad tumor and I have a really bad feeling about it, that's when I'll go ahead and try to coordinate a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And your general imaging, are you following that, that typical patient with CT scans or have you truly transitioned to ultrasounds for, for, for management or for monitoring, I should say? I, so I'm still with using CT scans, although we're very close to starting enrollment in a prospective uh, study that uh, we're very grateful to the Skin Cancer Foundation for supporting. That's going to be comparing 
ultrasound, uh, dermatologists performed ultrasound to CT scans uh, in about 80 uh, high stage tumors, uh, which we hope to enroll in with about maybe a little over a year. And we're gonna follow those patients every six months with both imaging modalities for, for two years. So um, hopefully we'll have better data on how those two imaging, imaging modalities compare as well as uh, the utility of imaging in this population and surveillance protocols. You know, a couple areas that we, re we really have no data on, so. Right, right, absolutely. You know, one of the things that comes up again and again at probably tumor boards across the country is the things that the staging systems, by virtue of being a staging system, don't really account for. And we're, we're largely talking about the, the nature of recurrent tumors and the presence of immunosuppression as a risk factor. Now, generally, staging systems are tumor-specific rather than patient-specific, and hence, even with you know, good data saying that immunosuppression uh, increases risk for all poor outcomes, we don't include it, but how would you, how do you currently manage the immunosuppressed patient and how do you foresee that going into any sort of staging or, or risk model in the future? So immunosuppression, it's interesting you ask about immunosuppression because we're just actually finishing looking at, uh, we have an expanded cohort at the Brigham and we just finished looking at stage for stage how immunosuppression is influencing the outcomes. And what I'll tell you, I mean, it's a little premature. We're, we're just getting ready to finalize our analysis. But I'll tell you is that the immunosuppressed patients are getting a lot more high-stage tumors. But when you look at them stage for stage, they're not doing worse. And I think there has been conflicting data published on how immunosuppression influences outcomes. And what, what I actually think, in my personal opinion, is that all immunosuppression is not the same. Now, if you look at a uh, study that Chris Schmoltz put out a number of years ago on CLL, she showed that high rise stage, high Brigham stage had worse outcomes than low rise stage. And so clearly those patients who had more advanced CLL did much worse. And the lower stage CLL patients didn't actually do as badly. And so, you know, I think there, I don't think that all immunosuppression uh, plays as big a role. And so I think that's why it's really difficult to build it into a staging system. Right. Not to mention that apart from things like rise staging for, for certain uh, diseases, we, we don't have a good measure of how immunosuppressed a patient is. I mean, even in organ, in organ transplants, uh, it's really the presence of rejection and not any serum drug levels that dictate whether or not a patient is is appropriately immunosuppressed. So what about recurrent tumors? Yeah. So recurrent tumors, I, I think, you know, have already shown that they're bad. And I think it, it depends. So to take a step back, I think, you know, it just, it depends a little bit on the recurrence. If you're looking at, you know, a well-differentiated squame that recurred after an excision, you know, I think that's different. But I think, you know, when you talk about a real recurrence, like a you know, a poorly differentiated recurrence or, you know, even a moderately differentiated tumor, you know, something that, uh, you know, a true recurrence, then those I, I think of totally different. And I, you know, those are not included in, you're not supposed to be staging those the same way you're staging primary tumors. All staging systems are built on primary tumor stages. And in fact, when you go back to do studies, you don't stage the recurrence, that, that's an outcome. 
Right. Uh, and so I really already, when I see a recurrence, I already think, okay, this is more aggressive. And I don't, I don't just say, oh, it's a T2A. You know, I already say, okay, this is a recurrence of a T2A or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I do manage it differently. Interesting. So, so those are sort of, you know, two intangibles that we come to appreciate more with data and experience, both the immunosuppression and the recurrence. Uh, I'm going to backtrack here and go back to the eighth edition, uh, just because I think it, it fits in nicely here and it's relevant. When we're looking at T2 and T3 tumors, one of the biggest differences compared to the um, Brigman women's system is the absence of poor differentiation. And uh, you and a number of other people have sort of hypothesized that that's probably the, the feature that's lacking to give the eighth edition the, the crispness that uh, Brigham and women has. Can you comment a little bit on, on poor differentiation? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that point up. It, it is a big pitfall to AJCC8. And if you look at the outcomes that occurred in T2, 50% of them were poor differentiated tumors. Uh, and so right there, they missed you know, a, a good proportion of those outcomes. And the reason AJCC8 opted to not include poor differentiation is that there's no standardized way to grade it. And so it's very variable from institution to institution. Um, and so it's just a decision they made. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, I hope that going forward, you know, it seems like the, the elephant in the, in the room when it comes to uh, predicting outcomes that really needs to be included in some way. And, and mm -hmm. what the study design is to define how we describe poor differentiation remains to be seen. But I think it's certainly a big knowledge gap on our part. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think about um, gene expression profiling as an alternative to traditional staging or uh, traditional workup, realizing that there are studies ongoing looking at that. Have, have you had much thought on that? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, in the future, they may play a role as we're seeing in other cancers that are using different gene expressions to augment staging. I don't think it's going to completely replace our clinical and histologic staging systems because, you know, they're much more expensive. And so what, what I think they'll help us do is, is say, you know, okay, we have, um, you know, based on our staging systems, we know that these tumors are higher risk. Can we be even, do even better now at trying to predict who's going to get the, the poor outcome? And there is a, there was a, an abstract that um, I believe Sarah Aaron's the first author on that's been presented at a couple meetings where they looked at a gene expression based model. And the, I believe the positive predictive value was 50%. And so, you know, it's, it does better than Brigham and better than AGCC8 at um, identifying the poor outcomes. But, you know, one thing to remember is that squamous cell carcinomas are so heavily mutated that unlike other cancers where you can sometimes look at just even one gene expression um, profile, it's probably for squamous cell, the gene expression profile is probably going to be based on a, a number of different genes. Right, right. No, I, I think be between... Basal cell and squamous cell, that's been one of the most challenging things is that mutational burden of the cancers in making any sort of models. When we talk about squamous cell, and again, we compare it to melanoma, one of the big differences is how the bad outcomes happen in the sense that 
Squamous cell carcinoma is a likely morbidity and mortality due to local regional disease um, progression or recurrence. Mm -hmm. The nodal staging for squamous cell carcinoma is currently not very reliable. Um, when you compare the eighth edition of the nodal, nodal squamous cell carcinoma staging to the seventh edition, it shifted significantly in that we're almost modeling it after mucosal squamous cell carcinoma with an emphasis on extracapsular extension. And a couple of studies have now uh, attempted to validate the updated nodal staging system and have found similar challenges in terms of distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. And a couple of studies in literature have now compared nodal staging systems, again, based on their distinctiveness, homogeneity, and monotonicity. So I wonder if you have any comment on that, and, and when can we see a Brigham and Women nodal staging system? Well, we're not currently uh, working on a nodal staging system, but maybe we should put efforts into it. But I will tell you there is some good data from Vanessa in Australia about outcomes in nodal disease. Um, and he's probably been leading up a lot of the, the, the staging, I would imagine, for um, the nodal basin. Um, but he has some good data to show that, you know, if you have a small lymph node, so that's less than three centimeters without extra capsular extension, the um, five-year disease-free survival is 100%. Um, he had a, a cohort, I think it was small, but it had 19 uh, tumors and only one um, recurred, and that was salvageable by surgery and radiation. And so those tumors do really well, which was um, in contrast to more extensive nodal disease. And I think it was something like 19 out of 33 recurred. Um, those are just numbers off the top of my head, but it was a much higher recurrence rate. And so there is actually some, some good data to support the, the different outcomes within the nodal disease and actually um, treatment like radiation for nodal disease surgery and treatment. Um, they have a little bit better data for that. Hopefully more, more to come on that topic from a variety of, yeah. of sources in the future. Since you mentioned radiation, and it, it's fairly well established in, in nodal disease, but the other big challenge in, in our tumor board is always the management of high-risk patients, node-negative adjuvant radiation therapy. Now, you group at uh, Brigham and Women just put out and published a manuscript titled uh, Evaluation of the Utility of Localized Adjuvant Radiation for Node-Negative Primary SCC with Clear Histologic Margins. And uh, this is ahead of print. It just became accessible through PubMed. So uh, assuming a lot of our listeners have not had a chance to come across that study, is it going to change the way we manage our high-risk squamous cell carcinoma? Well, it's definitely changed how, how I manage squamous cells once I saw the data. And I think it's important just to, um, if, if you don't mind, if I just briefly describe a little bit of the methodology and how it differs from what, what, what's been published, because I think it's an important point. What we did was we, we exact matched the tumors um, that underwent radiation to tumors that didn't. And, so, and what we did was we matched on individual Brigham risk factors gender, age, and I want to say immunosuppression, and even treatment. And so we had really closely matched tumors, and then we looked at the outcomes. And we found that overall, we did a, also a subgroup analysis just of large caliber nerve invasion, where we did an exact match, we just stratified by treatment. 
And we found actually that there was no difference in um, the outcomes in the tumors that underwent radiation and those that didn't. Uh, and so I've actually moved away a lot from uh, radiation. And I'm using it now in a few uh, scenarios, uh, which I'm happy to share with you, which is, you know, tumors where you have multi, uh, you know, multifocal spread um, or, you know, single cell spread that doesn't seem contiguous. You know, there I never trust my Mohs margins. Um, I also use it for um, multifocal large caliber nerve invasion or even multifocal small caliber nerve invasion, just where you have tons of nerves involved. And that was really more based off of a, another study that was done that showed that if you had more than two nerves involved, there was an improvement in outcomes. And so it really has actually had me recommend radiation less frequently. Um, I'll also point out in that paper, what's interesting is that within the large caliber nerve invasion analysis, there were about seven or eight T2A tumors that were only T2A based on large caliber nerve invasion and did not get radiation, and none of those had a recurrence. There were seven tumors, um, and none had a recurrence. And so I think that's important, an important point. How surprised were you by this data? I mean, it sort of really shifts what we think we should have been doing. I always wondered about radiation. I guess I was a little bit surprised that once when we actually looked at the tumors, you know, that were really similar, and we included a, a detailed table of the tumors that had poor outcomes and their matches, just so people could see what type of tumors were matched with each other. I always thought, well, maybe we're just radiating the really bad tumors, and that's why you get these recurrences after radiation. That I think that maybe was the more surprising point. But I, I often found that for the for you know the routine, you know, high stage tumor or the routine um, you know, tumor that just happened to have some large caliber nerve invasion, you know, I always wondered whether it was necessary or not. And how much do you think is based on whether you're doing Mohs versus a traditional uh, excision? This seems like at the annual meeting and uh, in, in some recent publications out of Pittsburgh, it's been a hot topic on, you know, from their perspective, the, the Mohs surgery monotherapy for all squamous low carcinoma or even for higher risk squamous low carcinoma. Do you think in a bigger cohort of Mohs patients, some of the worry should be less than in a mixed cohort with destructive modalities and, and wide local excision, sort of going back to how your database was created in the beginning. Yeah, it's a good point. But, you know, we actually matched on that. <laughs> so we controlled for it. So we matched, we, none of our patients had gotten, um, all of them were treated with um, excision or MOAS because, you know, these are aggressive tumors. But they were all matched to ones that were treated with the same surgical modality. And so we took that out of the mix. Because I think it is, it is a question that comes up. And, you know, when, when we talk about doing radiation for a tumor, we do often talk about, you know, how confident are you with your margins? I actually just, Shlomo Koifman actually just sent an email to myself and Chris Schmoltz asking about uh, radiation for a tumor. And both of us actually responded uh, with a question about the surgical margins. And so, you know, it is a big factor that we take into account. But in terms of the results of the study on radiation, we kind of took that out of the mix by controlling for it. That, that's an excellent point. And uh, since you just mentioned it, I uh, encourage our listeners to, to follow this excellent podcast up with 
a listen into the April episode, which was Dr. Shlomo Koifman. Uh, that's episode six. He's a radiation oncologist at the Cleveland Clinic and really in a refreshing way shares a lot of the same information, but from, from a more multidisciplinary radiation oncology standpoint. Emily, with that, I really want to thank you for your uh, time to chat with me today. I want to thank all of our listeners for their attention. Uh, the articles that we discussed today will be included in the Mose College Reference Library, which is accessible through the ACMS website. To all our listeners, as always, please share this podcast with your colleagues and your trainees. Uh, let us know how we're doing and who you'd like to have on the co- podcast by contacting us at info at Thank you, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mose Surgery.